bum bum bottom 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 b
now that I've read volumes two and three, I'm saying that as a compliment. I thought that this was going to be a heist comic, but in fact, it's just sexy, sexy X-Men. Yeah, a sexy X-Men, for sure. Uh, you know, It's funny when you go back and you read a lot of the publicity around this book at the time. Uh, you know, of course, it's focusing on the bank robbery segments. But even years later, when uh, sites refer to sex criminals, they refer to that angle of the book. Yeah, and, and it's I incredibly misleading, you know, considering where it goes. Yeah, I think it's because that's a lot easier to explain mm -hmm. in a blurb than it is to explain, well, it's about these people, they start out as bank robbers, but in actuality, they undercover this undercover world where people are having sex to freeze time and control other people's lives. And there's like this strata of uh -huh. diabolical <laughs> control with the sex police. And now there's the the guy who now works at the bank, Badal, like there's just no getting into what sex criminals really there's is. There's a lot going on. In a blurb. That's a fact. That's but a I fact. I think that it is a mistake to say this is a comic book about sex and robbing banks because it's just straight up is not. Uh, yeah. Here's what I really enjoy about sex criminals. You know, American culture rarely addresses sexuality, and most of us are probably raised like Lisa was, where mom and dad skirt around the subject and let their kids discover it on their own. And in pop culture, sex is usually just seen through the prism of eroticism or comedy. You have your basic instinct and you have your American pie, right? Right. A lot of Sex Criminals Volume 1 was antagonistic towards our deep-seated puritanical relationship with sex. And yeah, it was damn funny in a lot of ways. However, in Volumes 2 and 3, which we're going to cover this week, while the story remains comical, Fraction and Zdarsky really delve into a much larger conversation surrounding sexuality. They expose the spectrum of sex and the possible infinite relationships people have with the physical and mental act of sex. I think that's definitely true. I wouldn't say that my parents wanted me to discover sex on my own. <laughs> I think it was more of a case of maybe she'll just skip it altogether if we never, ever talk Terrible about it. Terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. I turned out okay, though. I think you did. Uh, but we, what I love mm. about the discussion of sex in Sex Criminals is that how it relates to ourselves and how it can be an increasingly isolating thing mm. and how it relates us to others in a sense of, like, Everybody seems to have some kind of shame around their sexuality that through this community of having sex, they're trying to overcome. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I actually read a nifty little interview that Fraction did with Book Riot back in 2014, right before volume four of the series was collected in trade paperback. And he said something at the start of the conversation that really struck a chord with me. You mind if I read it to you, Lisa? Go for it. Uh, he said, from my perspective, I think the book speaks to the feeling of being alone and being unique and being unlevable and uneffable. <laughs> now, he says the dirty F word here, but you know, we're keeping a PG-13, so no F-bombs. And I stole, well, we get one F-bomb in a PG-13 movie, and I stole the F-bomb last week, and I want to make sure Lisa gets the F-bomb. Anyway, back to Fraction. Uh, he continues his thought, unwantable and undesired. Everyone's suspicion that deep down you're a weird monster that no one's going to get. And Lisa, 
That is exactly what you were just saying. Yes, and I love your little Freudian switch of uneffable, meaning unfuckable. There's my, I used it. Oh, there's it. I just used it. We hit PG-13. (laughs) And uneffable or ineffable because Mm, 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 mm. ineffable is the word that means undescribable. And I think that is something that Anna Kincaid in this comic talks about where everybody's sexuality is to a certain degree ineffable, undescribable, (laughs) because it is constantly changing. For sure. That our sexuality is something that's beyond the idea of a spectrum, because a a spectrum still implies like a fixed point. And nobody's sexuality is a fixed point. It's something that changes like time. It moves with us. It evolves as we evolve as people. Mm, Yeah, so true. Oh, good catch. Thank you. Good Freudian slip, (laughs) Brad. But I do think that 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 the describability of sexuality is something that we're obsessed with right now. This idea of I will feel complete when I can pin down exactly what our sexuality is, what my sexuality is, not just in terms of who I'm attracted to or what kind of sex acts will make us feel full Mm -hmm. and fulfilled. It's going down to how do I want people to relate to me Mm -hmm. within the context Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. my sexuality, how I want to present my sexuality in a world uh, where I'm not having sex with everybody. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation to have. And and like I said, I really like where volumes uh, two and three go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, as always, we look to a relationship guru to help us through the process of the romantic plight of our characters. And this month, we're using Esther Perel and Mating in Captivity. Uh, Lisa, how is Esther going to apply to Susie and John this week? Well, right in the beginning of volume two, Susie and John are feeling kind of settled down. Mm. Uh, Susie has gotten an extension from the bank. They're not going to foreclose on the library for another 60 days. So she has like a little over two months to raise the rest of the money, which she wants to do honestly. She doesn't want to get the money by robbing banks, having sex and robbing banks anymore. She wants to do it old school by doing fundraisers. And she's really preoccupied with that. That worked out really well for the Corleone family, for Michael in particular in Godfather 3. Oh, I haven't seen. I haven't seen any of the Godfather movies. They pulled him back in, Lisa. What? Um, Now, John, he now has the compass, the compass, where he can see every time anybody enters Come World or The Quiet. He's becoming preoccupied with it. Yeah, how could you not? And a little jealous of it. Like every time he hears that bloop, he's like, there goes someone else getting to have an orgasm. And he at one point tries to put the moves on Susie. And Susie's like, I've got a really big day tomorrow. I have to do a presentation for the bank. I'm really not into sex right now. And his first thought is, "Uh uh-oh. The honeymoon is over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's afraid they've entered the stage of their relationship where the sex stops or slows down. Well, he's not wrong, but it might also be a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and there is a lot about starting a committed relationship where you anticipate things having to change. And Dr. Perel talks all about this in her book, 
mating in captivity. Esther Perel is a world-renowned psychologist and couples therapist, and in her book, Mating in Captivity, Unleashing Erotic Intelligence, she explores why, in committed long-term relationships where the couple is still very much in love, the sex sometimes dries up. Dr. Perel pairs the issue down to two very separate needs of love and desire and how some couples view them in a way that makes them mutually exclusive. Love has come to mean closeness, security, and a lack of boundaries, while sexual desire requires separateness, unpredictability, and otherness. This week, I want to get into chapters one and two of Mating in Captivity. Their titles are From Adventure to Captivity, Why the Quest for Security Saps Erotic Vitality, and more intimacy, less sex. Love seeks closeness, but desire needs distance. Dr. Perel presents love as being built on two pillars, security and autonomy. We want to feel like we are cared for by our partners, that they're looking out for our well-being and our self-interest, but we also still want to feel like our own person. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the sense of security takes over the sense of autonomy and your connection with your partner suffers. Dr. Perel uses the example of John and Beatrice. In an attempt to make John happy, she dropped all of her autonomy. All friends became mutual friends. All activities became mutual activities. And all of her goals became mutual goals. Eventually, she stopped feeling desirable, and John stopped desiring her. Dr. Perel's antidote for this oneness, obliterating your desire, is to find ways to see the other person with new eyes. One of the ways is to think back to the first time you met your partner Hmm. and think about what about them attracted you to them? What about them made differentiated them from you Hmm. so for example like i think back to when i started falling in love with you feeling attracted to you back in our barnes and noble days uh and you always seemed to be the center of this little click we made at the store and all outings became Brad out. I don't know if that's true. It was because, and it was such <laughs> a tease way. because you decided you were going to be leaving the story. Right. I was moving to LA. Right. And so we start, they started having goodbye parties for you, <laughs> but at the same time you weren't going to leave. So like you weren't leaving. I, I left the store and then I took three months before I moved. Right. So we were having all of these goodbye Brad outings but you weren't leaving. So, like, every every time we went out as a group, it was an opportunity to be with Brad. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, in that, in that yes, and I was the center of attention for my goodbye parties, and there were <laughs> m- multiple goodbye parties. And everybody was seeking out your company because sure, sure. Okay, you're okay. a really nice guy, you're funny. Yeah, but that's not the first time we met. Like, we, we didn't, like... Um, fall for each other you know we didn't have a love at first sight situation because we worked together for probably a year maybe almost two years before we started dating but then we started clicking yeah yeah. once our group started going out to say goodbye to brad okay 
it's so interesting to think back on those early dating lives because they really do feel like two different Brad's and Lisa's. Well, it was like over 10 years ago. Yeah, it was 12 years ago. And I do feel a sense of oneness with you. Like, I'm an introverted person, but I don't feel like hanging out with you is expending my social energy. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like being with yeah, you is like another <laughs> version of being alone. But I still see you very much as a different person than me. And I think we do talk about our differences a lot. And we find our differences entertaining and um, attractive. Yeah, it's fun to think about. Yeah. Another way to differentiate your partner to create more space is to observe how other people observe your partner. Mm, Interesting. So I don't do that. Yeah. Like the example she gives is like going to a party and not sticking by the side of your partner. Watch other people enjoy your partner's company. Maybe watch someone else flirt with your partner and see, (laughs) see what about your partner is attracting those other people. Interesting. Ooh, nefarious is what that sounds like. I don't know. I think that there is something to it because I think that you're a very good public speaker. So there are times when you do like Alamo introductions and you're standing in front of everybody and you're commanding a crowd. And it does remind me, hey, Brad is super attractive. Look at him doing what makes him better than other people. I accept your compliments. You're welcome. I mean them. Dr. Perel uses the metaphor of a flannel nightgown, as in uh. you don't want your partner becoming a flannel nightgown. <laughs> something that you go to okay, for yeah. warmth, something that oh. you go to for comfort, yeah. but something that doesn't make you feel particularly sexy. For this, Dr. Perel uses the example of Candace and Jimmy. Now, Jimmy is, and Candace are both, musicians so they share a lot of the same friend groups they uh, do a lot of things together Um, but now that they've been in a committed relationship Candace doesn't feel attracted to Jimmy even though she deeply loves Jimmy okay and she says that the issue is that Jimmy always feels available to her. He is always there to comfort her. He always bolsters her self-esteem. And when they're at home, they're always touching and cuddling. Like a flannel nightgown. Yeah, and he has become this thing that she goes to for comfort. But now that she she knows that Jimmy's always there, she doesn't really want him. Hmm. And that super hurts Jimmy's feelings because he goes like, well, I'm clearly being this amazing partner because I am so supportive. And Candace is going, yeah, but in my dating life, I had a tendency to go after the unavailable. The only time she felt sexually attracted to him anymore was when he was performing and he was standing on stage and he was separate from her and he he was showing off his talents and commanding a crowd. And so she would start to want him really bad, but then she would go backstage and then it's the same old old Jimmy, the one that lives in her apartment. The way that Dr. Perel and her counseling reignited their relationship is she told Jimmy to maybe be a little bit more of his rock star 
persona at home and not be as available to Candace when it was time to initiate sex. And she put the kibosh on all cuddling. They were no longer huh. allowed to hold hands at home, snuggle on the couch, not until Candace's sexual desire was rekindled. Uh, can I ask a question? Sure. Who are Candace and Jimmy? Where are these examples coming from? They're like case files from her office? Like, what's the deal here? Presumably, that is what Dr. Perel is saying, that Beatrice and John are... A, a real is a real couple. Candace and Jimmy is a real couple. They're not just fictional metaphors. I have the exact reservations that you do, but every single book I've read so far for this podcast, The Five Love Languages, Wired for Dating, Love Types, all of them have used case studies with real couple examples in their literature, but I generally don't bring them up. Mm, okay. Because personally, I've always found case studies to be the least compelling parts of the book. It's, they're kind of like reenactments in a documentary. What I feel like they are, yes, because those also bug me. And we were talking about that today. Yeah, because we were watching The Family on Netflix. Right. But what I feel like it is is uh, psychologists writing fan fiction for their own ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like to pres I, I like to talk about the evidence they discover through metadata or neuroscience or hey look at the behavior of these rhesus monkeys or prairie voles and how does that relate to us where like I find like anecdotal evidence of hey it worked for Beatrice and John so it's going to work <laughs> for Brad and Lisa like I just don't find that scientific <laughs> yeah and, yeah and I don't know if Esther Perel is presenting her evidence this way because that's what she thinks the reader is going to find most compelling and she doesn't necessarily want to go back to her several years of going to school to become a psychologist or that she finds anecdotal evidence from her own practice compelling more compelling and she than probably does if I that's do, the I'm case. just wondering what she's basing her opinions on is it just her experience, which is substantial, over 20 years, or is it science? So she never refers to anybody else's research. Well, she quotes other people's research. She's clearly done a lot of reading on the subject, but she, her quotes generally are just rewordings of the same idea she's presenting. Okay. It raises an eyebrow, but I'll take it on face value. Yeah, yeah, and I'd be interested what our listeners think like would would they be more interested in scientific data versus anecdotal data do they is there any kind of differentiation yeah, tweet us let us know Ooh. um so relating this back to sex criminals and particularly volumes two and three we see how Susie and john relate to their sex with each other we see that evolve and then we also get to see a bunch of other people's relationship yeah, to sex right. and how that reflects how they feel about themselves. Yeah, the sex criminals gang is growing. Yeah, it is. All right, well, it's time to get into it. Uh, so because we want to cover every single issue of sex criminals that's available to us at the moment, 
we read a little extra this week. Uh, we're covering two trade paperback volumes, numbers two and three, which consist of issues six through 15, published between June of 2014 and March of 2016. The titles of the two storylines are Two Worlds, One Cop, and Three, <laughs> The Hard Way. <laughs> I get it. Two Worlds, One Cup? Yeah. I mean, cop. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here are the synopses slightly modified from Goodreads, Volume 2. Sex Criminals finds the honeymoon to be over for John and Susie. Once the thrill of new lust fades, where do you go? They better figure it out because the sex police are fighting dirty now, hitting Susie where it hurts by destroying the library before she and John can save it. And in Volume 3... So it turns out John and Susie aren't alone. Other people around the world, like them, freeze time when they climax. A self-appointed group wants to regulate and control them through fear and intimidation. That's the sex police. John and Susie are falling in love and want their freak flags to fly, but if they're going to fight back, they can't do it alone. And really, isn't that a metaphor for the whole series? That we might all be alone, but we're all alone together? I think so. Thanks, Goodreads. Uh, and they finished their synopsis Did, of Volume that was Three. That Goodreads said. Yeah, that's that's from Goodreads. Oh, fine. And it finishes with, if you read only one comic with a semen demon in this year, please make it Sex Criminals Volume Three, Three the Hard Way. Yeah, they're not being shy with their cell. I'm in. Semen demon. Semen demon. It rhymes and it's titillating. Well, I love we it. we can't start with the semen demon, Lisa. You got to build up to we the gotta, semen demon. You really, really do. Uh, spoilers: the semen demon highlight of the series for me. I feel like there's actually more than one. Well, no, I guess not. I there's one semen. There's demon, yeah, it is they, a semen demon. But there are. Um, Many compatriots that we find. <laughs> I just came up with that. I'm so proud. Compatriots. Yeah, okay. TM. I mean, that really is what volume two and three are. It's a coming together of the compatriots. That's right. Like I said in the intro, this is like sexy X-Men and everybody is discovering their powers. Yeah, yeah. Ocean's orgasm. Ooh, good one. <laughs> I can't let you have all the fun. Uh, so let's start volume two with, I, I mean, the, really the first two pages, right? Volume one, the, the first chapter of Sex Criminals back last week, that started with Susie breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader. And volume two begins with John discussing his problems and breaking free from uh, the narrative to talk to the reader. Well, things have really settled down for them. They've got a 60-day advance on the bank the sex police aren't on their tails so Susie is really excited about coming by this last $12,000 honestly and John John, John is mm -mm. not the kind of guy who does very well with idle time yeah 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 devil's playwork mm -hmm. and where that devil's playwork goes is his Peter that's right that's right so he's in the last book, he got a compass, a C-U-M-P-U-S, that bloops every time somebody goes into the quiet or goes into cum world, and he's become obsessed with it to the point where every time it bloops, he kind of takes it personally. Like, how dare you have an orgasm? Where I'm at home with Susie, who is so busy that she doesn't seem to be into 
sex at all. And the way John illustrates this to the reader is he's this gray ghost-like figure talking to us. Uh, like the world around him, you know, the, the, the narrative is all in color, but his fourth wall breaking is this gray ghost character and he drops his drawers and we see he's smooth as a Ken doll down there. Yeah, I think that has more to do with the medication that he goes on. I think that that gray ghost is from l- later in this particular issue. Dealing with the ADHD and the ODD. Right, so his anxiety symptoms start manifesting this time and like and worse than ever to the point where just taking a poop on in a plant at work is not enough to take care of his oppositional defiance disorder add generalized anxiety and so he starts flipping out to the point where his immune system is turning against him and he starts getting shingles and his lymph nodes start blowing up. He's just like not doing well. Yeah, and when we left this guy in the last volume, I was really concerned about going, you know, he's a real negative influence. He's a bad dude. And honestly, in reading volumes two and three, I don't see him as a bad dude. I see him as a broken human being, like everybody. Right, right. And there are times as a person who does has taken mood stabilizer mood stabilizers in the past. I do have a medication that I take in emergencies if I'm having a panic attack. There are times in your life where you need to rely on your meds more and times where you don't need them as much and it's really up to you and your doctor to really get that figured out, but he hadn't even been seeing a doctor. Yeah, no, no, he's self-medicating, he's Googling, the worst thing you could possibly do. And this is also a time when you would want to rely on your partner if you have one, and he feels like he can't with Susie. This is so male, but he, <laughs> she turns him down for sex. Once. One time, and then he's automatically like, honeymoon is over, I'm never asking her for sex again. Yeah, I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> so he's spoiler spiraling out of control to the point where he asks Susie to take him to the doctor because he feels like he has cancer AIDS. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And she does, and she tells him, like, I care about you. I want you to be well. I want you to be okay. So uh, he ends up going back on medication for the shingles, obviously, and for uh, the inflated lymph nodes, but also for his anxiety. And some of those medications in some people do have a tendency to what he called like sand the edges off. Yeah, or make him a Kendall. Uh, but I mean, just flatten you out all around emotionally. Right, 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 right. Not just sexually. Exactly, yeah. but also sexually. But also sexually, yeah. And so that's when we see that. I think that's who the gray monster is. That well, because the gray sexless, ghost is is the John that has experienced everything right. already. Right. And he just feels like, well, like feeling flat is better than busting out in shingles and feeling horrible. Um. But he also doesn't feel like himself, and it, and he worries he'll never feel like himself again until he sees Myrtle Spurge come into his bank yeah, and leave a deposit slip with a threat on it. Yep, yep, yep. And um, so he knows, oh, and this new guy comes into his bank, Cooper Badal. And he almost 
like uh, not supernaturally, but he recognizes that this is one of the sex police. He can just tell by movement. Right. That he's the other guy with the weird latex mask. And we figure out that this is the what they call the sex Batman. Yeah, sex Batman. He is the deep pockets of the sex police, and he's bought the bank, and he immediately cancels the extension to the library and demolishes the library. Yeah, sex police are now fighting dirty. Exactly. And Susie sees that. She loses her mind. John sees that, and he is full of rage. His emotions come back. His sexuality comes back. And all he wants to do is declare war on the sex police. Right. I think this says a lot about who John is as a person, where in order to be aroused emotionally and sexually, it has to come from a place of anger. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a place of acting out. And we do go into his childhood a little bit about how his parents never really noticed when he was just utterly failing. They really made him feel, his father really made him feel like, it doesn't matter what you do. And that's where he ha- he got this tendency to just want to set life on fire. Ah, but before that, we got to remember that John has made a crucial discovery Oh, yeah. In the basement of Kegelface, the basement of Myrtle Spurge. He has invaded her domain. He's gone into the quiet alone and wandered into her house, found a locked door, broke into that locked door, and there's a basement of dildos down there and crazy sex devices. Along with the file cabinet. Along with the file cabinet, of which the sex police have been collecting data on all these people who can do what they do. Right. Right. And that is that imposition is the reason why the library gets demolished because because of his invasion. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they demolish the library and kickstarting the next phase of sex criminals. Yes. What's also interesting is while he is breaking into Kegelface's basement we have another issue that goes back to the point of view of Susie and she needs new birth control because the birth control she's currently on is destroying her body. Yeah, not every woman responds very well to hormonal birth control. So it's good to go and explore your options if what you're doing is not working. And that's what her plan is. Of course, while this is all going on, you know, she's having this page of... uh, of despair and you know she's buying a muffin at a coffee shop the muffin falls out of her hand rolls down the sidewalk she reaches over to it goes five second rule i'm still gonna eat this muffin because she needs those carbs she's bloated she's hormonal (laughs) she feels unattractive she picks up that muffin goes for a bite and who's there but rachel her ex-roommate i say rochelle rochelle i don't know it could be rochelle rachel rochelle tomato tomato the most important thing is she calls her uh, her best friend a hobo, which I love. <laughs> hey, hobo, you you going to finish that? And they reunite because Susie really needs this relationship. But this time, she's going to learn from all the superheroes that have come before her and reveal her powers, her identity to Rochelle, Rachel. And, of course, she doesn't believe Susie until she does the quiet in front of her and draws a bunch of penises on her face. That's right. And then from that point on, 
They're bosom buddies. Rochelle's part of the team. Yeah, part of the team. But we still got to deal with that uh, birth control. That's right. So right after she told Rochelle about her magical orgasm powers, John comes home and it was like, I think I screwed up. And he reveals to her that he has broken into Myrtle Spurge's house and stolen these files. And for Susie, who is really feeling like she doesn't want to rob banks anymore, she no longer wants to be a criminal. And she believes they've agreed to run the straight and narrow. Right. She decides that she and John need to go on a break. And boom, break. Now let's go meet Robert Rainbow, Lisa. That's right. One of my favorite new characters. I love this guy. So Susie goes to the gynecologist, and her usual gynecologist is not there, the old man. I wonder if it was the same one from volume one from when she was a teenager. Yeah, the guy who looks like Chip Zdarsky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she sees her substitute gynecologist, and it is a sexy African-American gentleman named Dr. Robert Rainbow. I would never go to a male gynecologist ever, particularly a sexy one. Oh, I thought you were saying, like, I would never go to a gynecologist with the name Robert Rainbow. I I would not, because that's a man's Uh, name. (laughs) What's wrong with seeing a dude uh, gynecologist? I don't, like, part of it is probably a little bit of sex shame, Like, having a male look at my disgusting lady parts. But also, like, he doesn't have a vagina, as far as I know. I assume he doesn't. And so everything he knows about the vagina... Is from a book. Is from theory. Or experience. Yeah, theory. It's from in theory. Like, you know, like... You know, this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. How do you know? By asking around? I I, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, I don't know if I have any gender issues. Like, would I have a problem with a woman checking my prostate or something? Would or, you? My, da- I, my dad, curiously, has weighed in on this subject. Oh, let's hear and, it. And he says he prefers a female doctor to check down Why? there uh, because they have smaller fingers. That's logical. <laughs> He's a smart man. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. All right. Sorry for that tangent. But he p- pays her a tremendous compliment. He says, uh, well. She- oh, Robert Rainbow does. Yeah. Yes. So uh, she's decided to go with the non-hormonal cervical cap. Am I a dum-dum? But I didn't know these were a thing. I certainly did not. I thought they were just like, I thought, you know, that would just be a diaphragm. But uh, anyway, so he's fitting her for a cervical cap. And she says that. He says that she has a textbook perfect cervix, perfectly round. Yeah, can we talk about this sequence a little bit? Sure. So he's amazed by her perfect cervix, right? It's perfectly round, he says. It's so astonishing that he wants to bring in like a line of 20 other student doctors to poke around and observe her perfect cervix. And this is kind of where I feel like Fraction and Zdarsky's tone gets in the way of the narrative a little bit because does this actually happen, Lisa? Does a line of 15 gynecologists line out the door to check out her perfect cervix? I wonder if this is like some kind of teaching college, like scrubs, where you just have... I mean, it would have to be, but because of Fraction and Zdarsky's tone where they're breaking the fourth wall, they're sometimes 
interrupting themselves to explain an argument rather than showing you the argument. Sometimes when you have a, a piece of narrative, you don't know if what's happening is actually happening or not. And this was a case where I was a little on the fence to the reality of the situation. I think there are definitely offenses that are more egregious than this one. I think this... We'll th talk about it in volume three for this sure. This is a little bit ridiculous. Mm -hmm. What I would love, and I doubt it's going to happen, but maybe, I would love the perfection of her cervix to somehow relate to her powers. Mm, and for this to come back? Yeah. It might. We don't know. Yeah. But after he has fluffed up her ego enough, she feels confident to ask him out on a coffee date. Right. She and John, it feels a little weird because she and John are on a break, but handsome gynecologists don't just sweep into your vagina every day. And the thing is... Carpe diem. <laughs> this break doesn't last that long. You know, John goes to his psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is not helping him. He goes into a random mall food court, starts screaming at the top of his lungs, all his frustrations, and there's another psychiatrist sitting there eating some hot chicken who immediately begins to psychoanalyze him and hits everything spot on. And he goes, oh, this guy's pretty great. I'm gonna become his patient now. And that psychiatrist, which is, his, what's his name again? They don't say it until like way later in the comic and you kind of have to put it together yourself. But his name is Dr. David Glass. So Dr. David Glass tells him you need to exercise. You know, it, you got to get your endorphins, endorphins going w with physical energy comes mental energy. And he goes out jogging and he runs into Susie. Actually, he runs into Robert Rainbow outside the coffee shop with Susie and this is when we learn a little bit more about Dr. Robert Rainbow as well. He's an old friend of John's. In fact, he's the cat man who was supposed to go trick-or-treating with John when he was a kid back in the day. When he found the woods porn. When he found the woods porn. And the reason little Dr. Robert Rainbow didn't dress up in kiss makeup and hang out with his buddies that Halloween is because he had a trauma all unto himself. Yeah, he walked in on his parents, and it turned out that they were big-time kinksters. Yeah, BDSMers. Yeah, and they were kind of in, a middle, in the middle of a scene when he walked in. And his dad had a really cool, level-headed conversation about it. But Robert Rainbow can't hear it because all he's focusing on is the dog collar that the dad still has on his neck while he's having this conversation. He's there enough to say all of the right things, but also he ends up stuffing his feelings and giving him a complex. Yeah, because Robert Rainbow now is not the most adventurous uh, sexual player, and that'll come up in volume three. That's right. But here we are, Dr. Robert Rainbow, John, Susie, and Rochelle. I'm going with Rochelle now. Okay. I agree with you. <laughs> and Rochelle in the coffee shop, and John and Susie go off together, leaving Robert Rainbow and Rochelle together. And that's when they stumble on the uh, uh, library being demolished. Yeah, there is one thing that happens in that scene before the whole library demolishing thing. Oh, yeah? It, that I think relates back to mating in captivity. But seeing John interact with Robert Rainbow, being so... He, first and foremost, he's super cool about seeing his on-a-break girlfriend hanging out with this other guy. 
So that's very attractive. And then John being able to be happy and bubbly and have a rapport with Robert Rainbow, it was an opportunity to, for her to see John through someone else's eyes. Right. And she ends up holding hands with John at the yeah, end of exactly that conversation. Yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about with Esther Perel. Yeah, you got to observe your lover. Yep. But meanwhile, Rochelle can always smell when there's a handsome guy around. <laughs> so she rolls up. Yeah. But then, yeah, the library gets demolished and Susie loses her mind. All right. So the final issue of Volume 2 is another fascinating one that really caught me off guard. I was not expecting the return of Jasmine St. Cocaine. Yeah. Whoa. The issue starts out with a little bit of her sexual history, and she is an example of the horror story that... Have you heard of this, of... Uh, kids on the playground uh, breaking their pussies? No. Am I allowed to say pussies? Is that anatomical? We're trying to keep it biological, Lisa. Vagina. Hymen. She has... (laughs) That's fairly normal. Like, girls breaking breaking. their hymen. I have heard of that. Um, But she has some kind of accident on the playground where she's required to get stitches on her uh, clitoral hood. And so that has affected her responsiveness and sensitivity in that area. It's a female circumcision for all intents and purposes. Right. And even though there's more to the clitoris than just the hood, it also is goes internally. I learned that from uh, Dan Savage because we all know that I was opted out of sex ed in elementary school. Would that really come up? But I was opted out of sex ed all the way through high school too. Um, anywho... In high school, she ends up losing her virginity to a guy named Jerry. And while she doesn't have any kind of pleasure coming from the sex, she does find that she gets a lot of social currency being a sexually active teenager. So long story short, she can't pay for college. So she starts stripping and stripping leads to modeling and modeling leads to porn. Meanwhile, her academic desires never diminish, and she ends up getting many degrees, and she ends up taking a third name, and that is Dr. Anna Kincaid. Right, and we're learning about this presumably because John and Susie are cracking into the files of Myrtle Spurge, and they find Jasmine St. Cocaine's file there, which of course blows John's mind. And Susie's, and she's like typical, of course, you're like sex goddess is in one of these files. And he tries to start teasing her about Robert Rainbow, but then they end up arguing. And that arguing leads to makeup sex. And then they're back together again for all intents and purposes. Uh, They go after Dr. Anna Kincaid. They want to meet up with her. That's right, because they want to create a united force against, against the sex criminals. Right, right, right. And Anna Kincaid is mm, not uh, not into what they're selling. Not until they show her her file yeah. and that the sex police have collected all of her private information. Now she's a little mad. Yeah, she and is. And she reluctantly agrees to join up with John and Susie. And the way they do that is they all go to a hotel together and they all 
attempt to climax at the same time, which they are successful. John and Susie in one room, uh, Jasmine St. Cocaine in the other room. And when uh, Dr. Kincaid, Jasmine St. Cocaine, when she climaxes, a force ghost comes out. She she doesn't exactly enter the quiet in the same way that John and Susie do. They have, it's like she's got like bonus power. So not only does time freeze, but she becomes this ghost that can fly and glow and stuff. And that's basically the end of volume two. Uh, the sex police monitor their blooping together. And now they realize that these three are teaming up towards each other. There is some cool stuff between Rochelle and Robert Rainbow. Where they're Robert, becoming closer. They're coming closer, and Robert Rainbow says the reason he's a gynecologist is because he's more about giving life into the world than overseeing death, and that's why he's pursuing the vagina. Also, John has been making progress in therapy with Dr. Glass, and while talking about sex... John asks a question in such a way that the doc goes like, are you talking about sex or are you talking about love? And John is like, oh no. <laughs> and he discovers that he is actually in love with Susie and he starts to visualize this black box in a red room. What's in the box? I am not entirely, like, we won't know until it's open because there is some indication that it has something to do with once Susie knows that he is in love with her. The box will open. The box will open and some kind of heinous something will come out. Who knows? Or maybe the box is just those three words, those I love you words. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's how I interpret it right now anyway. Yeah. So we're at the end of volume two. Let's jump into volume three. Let's see if we can get through three pretty quickly. So much going on. Why did we say two volumes? We want to do the whole series. We were... that's so much to chew with one bite. <laughs> it really, really is. Uh, okay, volume three. This is the volume where the team comes together. And I, I just want to hop around to the relationships that are driving the narrative of this book. Uh, so let's start with Doc Glass and Myrtle Spurge. Oh, so fun. So, so intriguing. I, I was honestly surprised. I know they had, they're in issue 10, they, you saw them in the food court together, but they had no interaction. It was just sort of like Myrtle Spurge is... Uh, Infiltrating John's personal life. And we know that it is for ill-gotten reasons. Right. And then the next time we see them, Doc Glass uh, is having his Peter uh, taken care of by Myrtle Spurge in bed. Right. And she is under... The, she's there under the pretense of learning more about John and getting Doc Glass's notes about John. But we kind of get the sense that Myrtle Spurge is also looking for a little something else. You get the impression that she's really lost in her own life. And before these issues, we have taken a glimpse into her home life with her husband and with her ratty little children, foul-mouthed children. And they, they are always comical, but I guess as you start to read this series or this volume, you begin to think, mm, maybe there really is deep pain in that ha home. Well, I think that 
she sees herself first and foremost as a family woman, a dutiful wife. A minivan driver. She cares for her kids. She's taking them back and forth for lacrosse practices. But, and that sex police is something separate from her. Something that she does for the good of all, but doesn't really get who she is as a person involved. And she doesn't need to have sexual relations with the doctor to go to the quiet to look for She needs no one. She's Kegelface. She's Kegelface. So she is doing this under the guise, fooling herself that she's doing this to get the notes, but Cooper Badal, her boss, knows better. And then by the end of volume three, I think she knows better and it's devastating to her. Yeah. Do you do you consider Cooper Badal her boss? I he's, do. He's definitely the guy with the money, but when they are in sex police mode, she's running point and he's behind her. But she is trying to make him responsible. Mm-hmm. Like if you think about that scene in the office. Yeah. She's trying to make him responsible for what she's doing, fooling around on her husband, having sex with this doctor. I'm doing this for the good of the cause. Exactly. And Cooper Badal is like, well, I think there's a little something in this for you as well. And he's not wrong. Right, right, right. And I was um, cautious towards this relationship between Doc Glass and Myrtle Spurge in the beginning. And I thought, oh, this is a little... This is a little too convenient. But by the end, especially where this story goes for them, I love them as a couple. I think it is really interesting. And it does make you wonder about Doc because he seems to be this even keel guy when he and John first met in the food court. He has Doc, all the answers. Yeah, Doc was this source of reason, and and he seemed to have kind of a, a cynical view of therapy, but one that was enlightened and rational. But maybe he's lonely. We know nothing about his personal life. We've never seen him with anybody besides John and Myrtle Spurge. Like, yeah. what's going on in his private life? And it finally comes to his attention that uh, she has taken the files mm-hmm. by the end of this volume, and he is devastated. Humiliated. Humiliated. And he goes to John and Susie, who've had their own adventure over the course of this volume, who've really made some interesting progress. Uh, And he goes to them with his hat in his hand to apologize. And that puts him on their team. Yeah. Because there's other people who are introduced. John initially, John initially tried to keep him out because. He doesn't want his doc on the team. Yeah. Well, because there were the two instances. There was the instance in the bedroom where Myrtle Spurge seemed to be going through his notes and in his session with John, he asked John, like, does this name mean anything to you? And John was like, no. Because John can't be open with any one person. He has to hide something from everybody. Clearly. And with keeping all of the sex police stuff out of his conversations with his therapist, I'm sure that he's not getting a complete therapy session. Yeah. yeah no, Because it's such a huge part of his life. And I think it was a missed opportunity for John to go like, yeah, this Myrtle Spurge person has it in for me. Stay away from her. And he could have saved 
Doc, a lot of heartache. That's easy to say as the reader. I'm sure he was, he just panicked. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, narratively, you know, by this point, like the first time he denies Myrtle Spurge to his doc, you know, by the end of this volume or some other volume, John and Doc are going to have a real open conversation. But I, then when they do, at the end of volume three, they're interrupted by these other interlopers. Right. There's a, like, um, it's like the movie Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, where just everybody is just so happens to be in the same place at the same They're time. They're all converging. Yeah, and it's really satisfying. Yeah, it's super satisfying. Okay, so that's happening. And while that's all going down between Myrtle Spurge and Doc Glass, Susie and John have gone down to Miami. Yes. And we know it's Miami because we have a montage of dolphins smoking dope and diving in the ocean. (laughs) And we see David Caruso on the set of CSI Miami. And we see a close-up of Susie reading Burt Reynolds on People magazine. (laughs) Yes. They are following and tracking down the different people that are in the sex files. So they're first going to see Doug D. Douglas. (laughs) What's the D stand for, Lisa? Probably Doug. (laughs) Doug, Doug, Doug. Doug, Doug, Doug. Doug is an orderly at an old folks home, and he also takes care of his ailing mother because he cannot afford to put her in an old folks home. But he seems like a really sweet guy. Mm -hmm. He loves his work. He loves being of service. And he just has this thing where after his mom goes to bed, he puts on an anime mask and jerks himself off, and when he comes, like a an adorable little anime fairy comes, like comes Sailor out of his Moon pe- basically comes out of his penis. Yeah, but like Sailor Moon with like a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> and she's the semen demon that we were talking about at the start of the show. When she lifts, lifts her little school gir- girl skirt, there's a whole Cthulhu situation yeah, it's, going on. It's under a there. full hentai horror show uh, below her skirt. And Susie and John, they're watching him on the compass. They coordinate their activities so that they can be in the quiet with Doug. Yeah, big mistake. To try and reason, <laughs> to try and reason with him. Um, but Because they're forming an army. They are being active in the pursuit of the sex files because they want to get a gang together to battle the sex criminals. Right, but... I mean, the uh, sex police. Yeah, but the the semen demon, she's she's not interested in on being on anybody's team. And she speaks this weird alien language that they do not understand. But, of course, the readers do because we have that little asterisk that translates it for us. So Susie and John end up running from uh, Doug's tentacle situation. Yeah. And they run down into the basement where, of course, he has a sex dungeon. I love how everybody in this book has room in their homes for an enormous secret <laughs> sex dungeon. Especially, like, who has a basement in Florida? <laughs> that seems like a, like you're just asking Triple Doug for... Triple does, that's who. You're just asking for uh, leakage problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Crawl, there's that Crawl... Well, that's a Crawl space, not a basement, I yeah, guess. No, okay. because... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fair point. But in that magical basement, in that sex dungeon basement, is this crazy... A uh, doll. Dildo monster. Well, like, it, it's not a monster. Like a plushy dildo monster. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a statue. It's a plushie that has been built to satisfy the semen demon when it gets out. Yeah. And that semen demon goes right for that plushie. I, 
like nothing really comes of that big. It's just a gag. Yeah. More importantly is the conversation that's being had before the semen demon attacks the plushie between John and Susie. Right. So Susie, she's having trouble seeing in this tiny basement. So she uses uh, John's glowing organ to help light the way. And she starts feeling like she gets this feeling of inadequacy because like everybody has like bonus powers and not her. <laughs> like, like. Anna Kincaid, she becomes the force ghost. Yep. John has the glowing penis. And, yeah, and, and Doug guy, has the semen demon. Yeah. And she just doesn't understand why she doesn't get to have, like, all she can do is stop time. It doesn't feel so special anymore. And that doesn't get resolved in this issue, but it's got to at some point, right? I'm interested to see if either she learns to accept the idea that, well, all she can do is stop stop time and most people can't do that or because of her beautiful perfectly round cervix she has some other power that she hasn't even tapped into yet that's what i'm leaning towards that she is a skywalker chosen one that's what i'm thinking uh but but also going on in that conversation in, in this experience is this is not what she wants to do with her life she doesn't want to keep going into basements and robbing bar, uh, banks and, and dealing with these creatures. She's losing interest in the life. To me, I don't feel like she's necessarily losing interest in the cause. I think that she just doesn't want to rob banks anymore. Right, she wants yeah. to do it honestly. That, that's that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah. And, and I think it has to do with she has a deep feeling of guilt. She still feels that it's wrong. Like, it was one thing when she was stealing money for the bank for the library and giving it back directly to the bank. But now she and John are putting balaclavas on and having sex in front of an ATM, and they're spending all of this money in Miami on Food, room gas, service, lodging. a really nice hotel. And she gets the sense from John that, that is that is the thing for him. Having some kind of gross, um, sexy secret is is um, give it jazzes him. Well, it's all. I mean, it always has been. When he goes into the quiet or come world, he enjoys the hijinks that ensue from his time there, and that's never been Susie's bag at all. Right, right, and and um, and I think that. This leads directly up to what happens at the end of this volume. volume. But before we get to that volume, yes. they return from Miami and they meet back up with Dr. Kincaid, Jasmine St. Cocaine, who's giving this really interesting lecture oh, yeah. that they eavesdrop on. Let's talk about this lecture. Anna opens her lecture by defining the terms normal and abnormal. So... The word normal comes from the Latin of norma, meaning carpenter's square, which is something you use to make things regular and correct. Yeah, yeah, mathematical. And, and abnormal comes from the Greek anomalos, which means monstrous. So our society is operating under this false binary of either you're normal and you're right and you're correct and the way that you are measured means you fit perfectly in with the rest of the universe or you're a monster. And I think that that 
this is really what sex criminals is all about. Yes. It's about how every single person, one way or another, feels weird about their sex. Right. And as uh, Anna progresses in her speech, which jumps all over the place in that issue, because while this speech is going on, you know, John and Susie go down to Florida. Um, uh, uh, Myrtle Spurge and Doc Glass are having their exchanges. Rochelle and Robert Rainbow are having a conversation in bed. And over the course of this issue, as these sex criminals are exploring their sexuality, and as we're about to introduce a new form of sexuality in the next issue, Dr. Kincaid is talking about how normal and abnormal is a falsehood that makes that leaves everybody out that leaves everybody out we, that's why we all feel, feel alone yeah and by the end of her speech she's saying there is no one sexuality the, you know that there's it's not like it's not gendered it's not um a straight fix. or uh, or gay it is a spectrum not no she says it's specifically not a spectrum she says if our mind is adrift beyond space-time itself and our sexuality is a part of that, then surely there is no binary. It's not even a spectrum. Sex, gender, identity, the fabric of who we are, of our own personal space-time continuum, floats like a cork tumbling through a manifold of dimensions. So she's saying, like, the, there is no way... To pin down who you are as a sexual being. Because it's always changing. So it, it's not a spectrum because you're always shifting where, you know, you, or the idea is always shifting of what sexuality is. And I think that that's why everybody has some anxiety in sex criminals, but I also think in life, everybody carries around some anxiety of. I don't know exactly who I am and I am panicking trying to define it. Yeah. Meanwhile, where, normalcy is constantly changing. Yes. And, and it's we're measuring ourselves against a plat platonic ideal that does not exist. Yeah. 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 And what's the last thing she says in her speech there? Because that was kind of like my light bulb moment. Oh, I love that, too. I'm going to read it. OK. Our sex changes like time changes, like space, like the universe itself, expanding, growing, collapsing, warming, cooling, evolving there is no who we are there is only who we are right now like apply that to everything exactly like since brad and i read this volume we have been saying that to each other like a mantra yeah it's so so cool and you know you you hit that moment in the book and, and you go oh Thank you, Matt Fraction. Thank you, Chip Zdarsky. This is awesome. So cool. This is what elevates sex criminals above other comics. This is why people are super excited about this book. And if we tie this back to the Myrtle Spurge doc situation, Myrtle <laughs> Spurge is in this crisis of, I may not be the woman I was when I married my husband. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. may not be the woman I define myself as a woman who has one sexual partner. And so that's when John and Susie uh, talk to Anna Kincaid after her speech. And this leads into the introduction of a new type of sex criminal. Yes. Alex. Alex. I love Alex. 
So we get a little bit of Alex's background. She was a person who was never particularly interested in sex, and she felt very alienated because of that. Um, because people, especially teenagers, define existence around the desire to have sex yes. if they're not even having sex. And she just didn't want any part of that game. She always had an observer's nature. Even from the time she was a little kid, she she liked to watch uh, Cosmos. Yeah, with Carl Sagan. Yes. And, and Carl Sagan has never been sexier than <laughs> the pages of Sex Criminals. But she saw herself as an alien observing the human race. And as she found... Like, as she was feeling more and more like she didn't fit in in high school because she did not want to have sex, she found comfort in Carl Sagan and Carl Sagan saying, there's an infinite number of possibilities of who you who human beings can be, so therefore there is no wrong answer. Yeah. Like, who you are as an asexual being is not a mistake or it's not a... It's not an accident. It's just who you are and who you are is correct and right and okay. So coming off of Dr. Kincaid's speech into this character's revelation, Sex Criminals becomes a really beautiful book. Absolutely. And she discovers that she has the ability to enter the quiet when she's falling from a high place, whether that's jumping off of a swing or diving off of a bridge or jumping off of a high rise. When she falls, she enters the quiet and can fly. Yeah. I love her her journey to finding her entrance into the quiet because as a child, there was this bridge that she would go with her brother's friends and they would jump off the bridge into the water. And she was too scared to jump into the water. But then later, her brother, who had been a victim of sexual abuse by their stepfather or mm-hmm. father... Um, I think stepfather, Uh, he killed himself off of that same bridge. Mm -hmm. And when she got older and she was feeling so alone, she too jumped off of that same bridge. But instead of taking her life, she found the quiet and the quiet rescued her. And narratively, she's tied with Doug D. Doug. And the two of them decide after the invasion of the Seaman Demon's basement that they're going to go after John and Susie. I think it's Brad and I argued about this off mic because the the little asterisk, the subtext says that. Oh, the Seaman Demon's language. Yeah, that the Seaman Demon is speaking some crazy alien language. It says, I think, angelic language. And, but it's a language that Alex speaks. So I'm wondering if Alex... Well, she's Asian. Yeah, so I'm wondering Sailor if Sailor Moon Seaman Demon is of an Asian variety. So I'm wondering <laughs> if the, he's just... If the Seaman Demon just speaks in, a, like, a Asian language. Yeah, and yeah. Chip Do you think it's, like, speaking Matt. Japanese? Yeah. Mm, maybe. I don't know. But Chip says it's an alien angel language. I don't I'm take going those dudes seriously. What do they know about their book? <laughs> <laughs> And Volume Three's final component of bringing together the sexy X-Men are Rochelle and Robert Rainbow, and their very complicated and fascinating relationship outside of the quiet. I love them as like this anchoring couple of 
here's more or less what normal sex we know Quote the normal unquote. yeah yeah right yeah. looks like they they're not nothing magical literally magical happens when they have sex but at the same time they also have feelings of inadequacy and anxiety and ways that they are not meeting eye to eye right so as we we talked about earlier you know robert Rainbow has very complicated issues with sex because of walking in on his parents when he was a child, and he has embraced the vanilla lifestyle. But and I is, think the vanilla lifestyle might just be who he really is. He's just hi, a vanilla. My name is Brad Gullickson, and I enjoy the vanilla lifestyle. <laughs> um, uh, the two of us should really have a meeting together, some <laughs> kind of group. Uh, but he's feeling incredibly inadequate because Rochelle has shared her very adventurous sexual history with him and, and it is infecting his mind and she doesn't know that he isn't charmed by it because he doesn't say anything and talking about we know Rach from the time she was in high school talking about sex was her social cachet it was very much a part of who she was she was a person who was comfortable with sex so when she finds out that this cute guy doesn't know what a dick pic is. She's like, hey, look at this collection I've acquired over the course of my adulthood. Yeah, horrifying. And, and then finally, <laughs> they're in bed together, and she is giving him oral, and she does a move without consent um, that um, he doesn't appreciate. Yeah, yeah. And she goes, oh, well, most dudes I know like that, and that just destroys his brain. Right, and and she apologizes. She's like, sorry, I, I was trying to make you feel good. Made a wrong move. It's okay. And he starts going like, well, I guess I'm pretty vanilla. And I think that there is, in society, like, it's kind of uncool to be vanilla. And I remember, like, you know, talking to people or having those what are you into conversations and not even necessarily with people I'm like negotiating sex with, but like even like at a bachelorette party, yeah. there was always this conversation of, hey, what are you into? And like, and I remember going like, well, like I'm still pretty excited about regular. Yeah. I, I like remember, what's my favorite move? I don't know. It's comfy. <laughs> I was at a party when I was much younger and they were going around the room in this party uh, talking about everyone's greatest sexual adventure. And I remember them coming to me and saying, like, oh, well, your turn, you know, share your greatest sexual adventure. And I just on the spot improved an insane <laughs> story that everyone just bought because we were all drunk and whatnot. But it was a total fabrication. And I just remember feeling so... Uh, insecure in that moment, trying to like compete with everyone's adventure nature. Yeah. Very Robert Rainbow of me. There, there were times where I would just kind of go like, oh, maybe some light bondage. Like saying something like, oh, you know. But in reality, like I think that we, th we talk a lot about kink shame. Like you don't want to kink shame someone, but you also don't want to vanilla shame people either. Everybody is into what they're into. And I think that it's charming that we're both into regular. Yeah, yeah, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but from this moment forward, when we keep coming back to Rochelle and Robert Rainbow, uh, he is he is all working. up in his head. Yeah, he's all up in his head. And there's one moment 
where he's in this fantasy, and it might be my favorite section of the entire book, and mm. I would love to like plaster it all over my social medias, <laughs> but I can't, I guess. I don't know, because I'm a prude. I'm not sure. Uh, but he sees uh, Rochelle in a gangbang situation in his mind, and everyone around her is sprouting penises. Mm-hmm. And there's even like a cartoon penis who has like a penis thumbs <laughs> and he's a, you know, he's just a walking penis. And that little cartoon character, I need a plushie of it. Yeah, it is pretty darn cute. <laughs> but that's, that's the depths of inadequacy that he has sunken into at the midway point of volume three. And we need to get him out. And trying, and him trying to talk about this with her, like they have the instance with, they run into Jerry and Elaine and, Rachel mentions casually. Are you that, calling her Rachel now? I thought we were calling her Rochelle. Oh, sorry. <laughs> In my notes, I just write Rate, R-A-C-H, so I just switched I up. have no idea. Listeners, I really need you guys to correct us. I need you to tweet us and tell us if it's Rochelle or Rachel. <laughs> I'll just go Rach. <laughs> okay. So um, they run into Jerry and Elaine. Rochelle implies that they have some kind of history, and Robert assumes that it's a sexual history, and he starts seeing, like, penis sausages around his waffle and he starts freaking out and he leaves. And in doing that, he stumbles over one of Rachel's insecurities. And Rachel seems like a person who doesn't have that many, but she's going like, Oh, well you think I'm just this huge slut. You know, you think I've been with all of these people. yeah. Yeah. And I would be mad too. Like it all comes down to communication. He needs to be open with his inadequacy, if he's going to have a real relationship with this woman, he needs to tell her about his parents. You think so? I d- yeah, yeah. Now, that's not like early dating kind of story. Like, that's not a story that I would have told you when we were early dating. But when we get serious, when we go steady, when you hit steady, <laughs> you got to talk about that. And you got to talk about why you feel so uncomfortable with her history as a sexual creature. Yeah, yeah. Or Robert just has to go, like, I, I don't know. I I have a hard time. Like, I don't. They have to be open with each other do. about their feelings and why he's feeling this way. He has to expunge himself. Yeah, yeah. I think he also has to, like, they do have to decide, like. Well, he has to understand that she loves him, if that's, or she wants she, to be with him. Yeah, she and likes if she's him there, as a person. If, if, if she's present in the relationship, she's chosen him. He's one in this, uh, in this situation, and he should lean into that positive feeling. But if they are going to be a proper item, I really do believe they need to be open about their, their history and their insecurity. And yeah, about more about their insecurity than their history, I think. Oh yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't mean that he needs her to lay out all the conquests she's had. I'm just saying he needs to say, look, I feel inadequate in this scenario. And it's probably because of these reasons. Yeah. I think bedroom wise, I think that the gay community has it way like they are way advanced beyond the straight community when it comes to talking openly about sex because with st- straight sex there's always like the default mode well it's it's p and v that's what straight sex is where gay sex can come in all kinds of shapes and colors and when they're getting ready to go into bed together they have like their list of this is what I'll do with enthusiasm this is the thing I'll do 
you know, despite not being super into it. And these are the things that I do not do. But that's what we were talking about. I think even in our first episode on sex criminals is you have to like communicate with your partner in the bedroom, what you're into, what you want and what you don't want. Yes. Yes. And I think that maybe Rochelle and Robert went into the bedroom without any kind of explicit conversation, but like, like Robert is so naive. Like he didn't even know her, I'm guessing slipping a finger into his prostate area was, he didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's tough. I mean, he is incredibly naive, uh, but you, it's always dangerous when you go into defense mode in a relationship. Yeah, that's definitely true. Right. Okay. Where we leave off with Robert and Rochelle is that the volume ends with them no longer together. Rochelle is like, I was into you as a person and if you cannot get over my sexual history, then we're not going to work. I still have hopes for Rochelle and Robert. I hope that they get back together. Oh, they're definitely coming back. Uh, that would be a waste of a character. Because no. Rochelle think, is in on the secret. I so think she's they're part of the, of the sexy team. X-Men. I, I do. I think they're the um, Moira McTaggart of the group. Or at yes. least pre-Powers of Ten. No spoilers, Brad. Control thyself. <laughs> if you're not reading that series, it's great. Ugh. Okay, so where we should end our conversation around volume three is Susie's decision not to rob banks anymore. And she tells John. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about John and how he is holding inside a black box in his heart of the I love you words. Susie is holding in her heart the secret that she doesn't want her their relationship to continue in the shape that it's in. So I think what really made the difference to Susie of her going like, I really just don't want to rob banks anymore was the addition of Anna because now there is another woman observing her behavior and judging it. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And that goes back to Esther Perel, right? Where you start to evaluate your relationship through the eyes of others, or you should evaluate your relationship through the eyes of others. Exactly. So right after the Miami trip, Anna asks, like, how did you get all of this money? And Susie very casually says, like, oh, well, we robbed banks to get the money to do these things. And Anna is like, well, I don't want anything to do with you then. That's horrible. And I don't want to have anything to do with this project if it has the element of thievery in it. And Susie starts processing what exactly she's robbing the banks for. So the library has been destroyed she they she and John went back to the site and she gathered the books. I love this idea where she has built these birdhouses, these tiny little libraries and spread them throughout Have you, the city. I've seen these around. Never seen one. There's one right outside the YMCA where uh, there's in a Reston? Yeah, where really? there's a take a book, leave a book. Oh wow. And so she kind of gives it really came down to for her giving these books a life. Yeah. I and love it. she got the satisfaction out of distributing these books through these little mini libraries. And that part of her life is now resolved. And so she starts really judging herself. Now, John starts interning, I guess, for Anna. So he's in their office all of the time. Strange, but. And 
Anna looks at his phone and sees that he and Susie had been sexting while he was supposed to be working for her. And Anna takes that out as an opportunity to become a force ghost and have it out with Susie. I'm just going to straight out say it. This part of the book makes zero sense to me. And because I think of Chip Zdarsky and Matt Fraction inserting themselves into the narrative. I just don't understand why John sexting with his girlfriend would be anything that Anna would care about. Like, why would she be mad? Like, it doesn't involve her in any way. Why is all of a sudden, why is she sex shaming Susie? It's purely for narrative purposes to give a conversation between them. I I tend to agree with you, but to me, it's the argument that that happens after the fact where they don't even detail the argument where Zadarsky and Fraction come in to explain it. So we're going to have this presumably huge blowout between... Anna's force ghost and Susie. And for some reason, like, I guess Matt Fraction was like, I don't know how to write this argument. And we end up with three pages of Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky talking about how they don't want to write the scene. Yeah, yeah. I read through that very quickly because it was extremely not interesting to me. I read it multiple times because I was trying to figure out exactly what this argument was about. Because I'm like, well, I'm I'm curious. Like, and I you wanted, were frustrated also. I, and I do with Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky always inserting themselves into the story. I personally find it distracting and not very funny, and. It's happening more and more as the book is getting more interesting. Yeah, because I just want to be in the plot at this point. Let me see this argument. Exactly. And And I I just don't like the presumption that because we like the book, we're curious about the writer and artist as people. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Scenes like this go back to what I was saying with the gynecological visit, our first introduction to Robert Rainbow and that line of students out the door checking out Susie's cervix. It throws the reality of the story in question constantly. Yeah. And at times that's fun. And at other times I find it very um, disconcerting. I think that there is a history of like when you read old Marvel comics, whenever they have like those little editor yeah, Stan notes, Lee will jump in or yeah, whoever. you get a little cutesy fourth wall break on those. I love fourth wall breaks. I just think at times three pages of this this section not a great thing, and the go, reality is questioned. We go, yeah, we go into a story for a suspension of disbelief, and it's hard to dis. Suspend your disbelief when people are pointing at the fourth wall all of the but time. But that frustration is rather minor compared to how much I'm enjoying the rest of the comic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially by this point. But through that argument that we do not witness because of this little Matt and Chip hijinks, Susie decides, I'm going to tell John. I'm going to tell John I don't want to rob banks anymore. And he's been dealing with his own issues of going like, I am in love with her. I don't know how to tell her. And he accidentally tells her he loves her in bed that one time. And she was like, um, I'm going to go get coffee. And he feels awful and she feels weird. So it gets towards the end of the book. Anna is there and Anna 
is going to be a witness to this conversation. And Susie decides to start the conversation with John. We need to talk, which of course makes his heart drop into his stomach because he thinks she's going to break up with him. And when she tells him, I don't want to rob banks anymore, he is so relieved that they are not breaking up. And he's like, fine, that's wonderful. Just be with me forever. Well, he doesn't say that, but that is what is implied, that he is so relieved that they are still going to be together that he's okay with that. I'm interested on how this is going to work out going forward because they still have this mission to take down the sex police. That's going to take money. So is John just going to rob banks on his own or are they going to have to find some kind of other influx of cash? Well, they can't do anything until they address the I love you situation, right? Yes. Because he's thinking about that box in his head, that big black box in the red room. He says I love you quietly, sheepishly, not at all with any kind of force to it. Well, by accident, I think. I think he just blurted it out. Yeah, yeah. And, and... After that scene, they continue to be in the couple, as you say, but that black box is still in his head in the final pages. So even having just accidentally said, I love you, that whatever that is, the I love you that's in that box, which I'm guessing, which we assume is happening, it it still needs to be opened properly. Uh, Yeah, I think that uh, Susie has to accept the I love you to find out what's in that box. Yeah, yeah. So I, so then the then the book ends with Alex and Doug D. Doug knocking on the door while Doc Glass has come to a, a, apologize for letting all the files out and John getting punched in the face by Doug D. Doug. And now all our sexy X-Men are together, I guess with the exception of Myrtle Spurge. I love this ending of this volume because it, it's so many questions. Like, we have no idea how Susie and John are going to go forward now that they're no longer robbing yeah. banks. It was. We have no idea what Alex and Doug want to do. Yeah. Are they mad? Are they going to join the team? Like, what's happening? Doc, now, is he going to be in on the secret? Is he going to I know? I think so, yeah. I hope so. Yeah, I think we have seen the formation of the sexy X-Men. And I cannot wait for volume four. And it was really hard not to read volume four immediately after reading volume three. Well, I'm starting volume four as soon as we hit the record button, which makes it not record anymore. The off button. Thank you, my love. (laughs) So that is Sex Criminals volumes two and three. Thank you for sticking with us in this extra loaded content episode. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bonus time. Yeah, bonus time. Actually, we're at our average length. We're at an hour and a half right now, which is basically what our episodes are. We Uh, like talking. So, Lisa, uh, what are your final thoughts of relating this back to Esther Perel and mating in captivity? I think what resonated with the book the most was the idea of looking at your relationship and looking at your partner through other people's eyes. Because we get a lot of new additions in this one. That's right. And also the idea of once John and Susie are a little bit, like they're not officially a couple, like which I still think is weird considering all they've been through, why they're not saying, you're my boyfriend, I'm your girlfriend, we are in love. I don't know why they haven't reached that hurdle yet. I know that they have a lot of baggage. They're struggling. But 
they are more settled. They're with each other all of the time. I'm more confident about their relationship going forward here than I was at the end of volume one. But they do both comment on we're having less sex. The honeymoon is over. But I do. But they also both say it's kind of good because we were not getting a lot done having sex all of the time. Susie temporarily lost her friendship with Rochelle, which is something that was very valuable to her. John started getting complacent about his, um, all of his brain disorders. And so he had to take that time. So I think like once you're in a settled relationship, your priorities do kind of change. Sex becomes less of a priority, and the greater priority is how do we function as a couple in the world? Mm-hmm. For me, looking at volume three in particular compared to where we were at volume one, I go back to the Matt Fraction quote that I started this episode on, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's talking about how he wanted to address the loneliness that we all feel in the sexual arena and how we all see ourselves as monsters, you Mm -hmm. know, and you look at volume three and that conversation about abnormal and and normal. uh, It's it's, everyone feels like an outsider uh, and, and not just in the sexual arena. And what I'm responding so much to in these particular volumes of sex criminals is this idea that in our loneliness, we are together. Yeah, I definitely, my greater, my my most valuable lesson that I'm taking from this episode didn't come from Esther Perel. It came from, from sex, criminals. sex criminals and that idea of we're not responsible necessarily for who we are in the past. Like we are, we are only responsible for who we are in this moment. And it's, awesome. and it's yeah. the only version of you you can speak to. Because as soon as you leave the person you were, you don't necessarily relate to that person anymore. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, find, I find myself thinking about that a lot and, and going like, well, I'm going to be in charge of me in the present and I'm going to try to be in the present the best me I can be. And if I mess it up, then so be it. And also, if your mode of birth control isn't working, you should go back to your doctor because <laughs> there are options for you. <laughs> Um, so Brad, I guess this takes us into next week. What's our plan, man? Well, we're obviously continuing our adventures with Susie and John, but we'll hit the brakes on the amount of reading we need to do. Thank goodness. All we have to cover is volume four, AKA 4G. That's so fun. I love a pun. (laughs) So do they. Uh, that's issues 16 through 20. And I'm actually super excited about it because issue 17 is supposedly a parody of Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, which is one of my all time favorite comic book series. I know that about you. You do. Okay, Lisa, the time has come for us to scrub our dirty minds of all this delicious, sexy content. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. Brad, Mm. where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. And don't forget, you can email the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And you can commit to this podcast by following us, subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean, and hey, while you're hanging out at iTunes, why not give us the gifts 
of five stars and a super flattering review. We'd really appreciate it. Until next time, guys, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. My microphone helps me feel safe. I know that my microphone is there when I need it, but at the same time, I feel a sense of autonomy. I can still be myself away from the microphone. Is your microphone GGG? My microphone um, is GGG, though it does have a, a couple of kinks too far. Oh, oh my microphone yeah. is strictly into oral, <sighs> no plug stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I feel like we have to make that a stinger. Oh, no.